Father, we love you. Um, you're the only one we look to in times of crisis. Thank you for reminders that we are not sovereign and that you are. Our hard, Father. It, it makes us feel so weak and helpless and hopeless. And, but then we get to open your word and we see the glory of Christ. That we can take heart because Christ has overcome the world. That is our only hope in life and in death is Christ. So whether we live or whether we die, we are Christ's. And you've chosen a people for your name and for your glory. Oh God, we're grateful that you've chosen us to be part of that. And we take that good news, that hopeful news, that healing news to our neighbors, to the city, and to the globe. It's overwhelming when you think about it. But we're not doing this in our own strength. We're depending on you. Uh, so for this next 30 or 40 minutes, Father, as your word is being proclaimed, may many people hear, hear it and be healed. May many people hear it and reach out for the only hope that it, there is in this world, and that's Christ. So would you anoint Richard this morning? Uh, would you give him peace in his heart and confidence in his father? That simple words that you've given to him will penetrate hearts and change lives. So God, we ask for that miracle that happened this morning, whether someone's sitting in this room or whether it's someone listening. Uh, by your will, Father, in Beirut, wherever you have them this morning. Thank you for loving us and thank you for Christ. In his name we pray, amen. The most important thing about a man's life is what he believes about God. The most important thing about a woman's life is what she believes about God. At any time in life, the best response to discouragement, the best antidote for depression, or the best weapon against hopelessness is to simply look at God. And I'm so grateful for so many of you this morning here and through technology or looking at God. Yet, for a number of reasons, looking at God in the middle of crisis, or national or personal, is the hardest thing to do. And I believe that some of you are discouraged because you've quit looking at the majesty and mercy of God. And that is why we've set aside a few Sundays now, as we're trying to regather, to revisit our core beliefs. We, yes, we want your head to think more clearly more rightly about God, but what a waste. If all of this just stays in your head like the stuff in your attic that you put up there and said, I'm going to use someday, but you don't ever use. This is not attic information. This is stuff that you need to put in your den, in your kitchen, in your car, your office, and every step you take on the path. Last week, as we looked at God, we saw that he was eternal, supreme, sovereign, transcendent, and eminent, and today we get to look at the omniscience and the omnipotence of God. He is all-knowing and all-wise. There are very few things in life that thrill me more than talking about the knowledge and power of God. And I really want to put both of them together 
because you really don't want to, I don't like talking about one without the other because who cares if you knew all the answers but did not have the power to execute what you knew. So his power is as greatly important as his, his knowledge. God's knowledge and power are on full display the opening verse of the Bible. In the beginning, Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth. I love that verse, but I maybe like better how it's restated in Psalm 33. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made their starry host by the breath of his mouth, for he spoke and it came to be. Well, let's talk about the starry host beginning with our star, the sun. All of the weather patterns on earth are created by the energy of the sun. Without the light of the sun, all life on earth would cease today. The sun gives off more energy in one second than all of the energy that's produced by man in the history of civilization. Or to say it another way, if you could fill the earth with one billion, can't do that, one billion cities, all of the energy that a billion cities would produce in one year would be the same as the energy produced by the sun in one second. And all of it occurs by a nuclear reaction, nuclear fusion, where the sun continues to have these explosions, developing, um, converting hydrogen into helium and sending out that power to earth. And it's interesting, out of all of the nuclear blasts that occur on the surface of the sun every day, only a billionth of the power of the sun ever reaches earth. And that's occurring in every star in the Milky Way galaxy, that type of nuclear reaction on those stars, and that amounts to 100 billion other Sons. Let's see how large that really looks when you talk about the Milky Way. To gain perspective with the aid of computer animation, let's now travel with the Earth to the Sun at 100 times the speed of light. From this view, we begin to appreciate the magnitude of our own star. Over one million Earths would fit inside the sun. Yet our sun is an average-sized star. Many stars in our own galaxy dwarf it. Arcturus is the fourth brightest star in the night sky. Though 200 trillion miles away, this orange giant is visible to the naked eye. By moving our sun next to Arcturus, we can grasp its immensity. Arcturus is 100 times brighter, with a radius 20 times greater than the sun's. Yet even Arcturus appears small when compared with the supergiant Betelgeuse. Betelgeuse has a radius 600 times that of our sun. A reddish star, it shines a remarkable 60,000 times brighter than the sun. However, even Betelgeuse is not the largest star in our galaxy. Several red supergiants in the Milky Way are even larger. 
some with a radius 1,500 times that of our sun. So in our galaxy, the Milky Way, you have 100 billion stars, much of them larger than our sun, 100 billion 100 billion suns in our galaxy, and our galaxy is only one of two trillion other galaxies. So if you want to know how many stars there are in the universe, the known or measurable universe, two trillion times 100 billion. And God created it all. And it's amazing when you look at the description of how God did it, you, you read about this in Genesis 1, and when you talk about 2 trillion times 100 billion, all God says in Genesis 1, 11 is, and he also made the stars. Wouldn't you give yourself a little bit more props? But you wouldn't if it were not hard for you to create 2 trillion times 100 billion stars. If you want to know how long it would take to travel, again, the measurable universe, you were in a, a vehicle that could travel at the speed of light, which would be 60 times across the United States in a second. That's 186,000 miles per second. 60 times across the United States in one second. Traveling at that speed, 186,000 miles per second, to get to the known or measurable universe. Now, traveling at that rate, it would still take you 28 billion years across the universe. When you begin to comprehend the size of the universe, you understand why David was so awestruck by what we are doing today, and that is getting loved up on by God. David said, Psalm 8, when I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, that you care for him? Amazing. That that God would know you and love you today. And does God really care for you? Does he really know about everything in your life today? That's an easy thing for him to know because just, just to let you know how easy it is for God to know and care about every detail in your life, the scripture puts this random verse in Psalms 147.8. He determines the number of the stars and calls each of them by name. Not people, not made in the image of God, and he still names every one of his stars. That's 200 billion times, or 100 billion times 2 trillion stars, and calls them each by name. Sure, I guess this would be the Old Testament version of Matthew 6, that he knows all the birds, and he knows all of the stars. Rest assured that you who have been made as an image, there's nothing about your life that escapes the notice of God. So we glorify God and the, the power of God with the, the solar system and the universe, we also glorify God by the creation of water. Without question, it is the most important earthly gift that God could give us through lakes, rivers, and streams, and of course the ocean. 80% of our earth is covered with water, and it is perfectly designed to support the life of every creature on earth. Throughout the Bible, there are more references to water than there are faith, love, and prayer. Obviously, Jesus comparing himself to the life-giving ability of water. The Bible says in Psalm 147, he covers the sky with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain and makes grass grow on the hills 
and he provides food for the cattle. And he does this through the gift of rain. Every year, in, uh, actually every, every day, there are more than 10,000 thunderstorms that take place on earth. 16 million thunderstorms in a year on this planet. And again, these storms produce more power in a day than man has produced in all of history. On average, lightning strikes the earth every a hundred times every second. A bolt of lightning may be five miles long and contain a hundred million volts of electrical power, which would lead the psalmist to say he, his lightning lights up the world and his earth sees and trembles. And yet this is just a portion of the power of God when we see storms. Just a little bit of his power. Or for those of you this morning who felt the earth tremble, I don't know how many of you felt the earth tremble. There was a quake, 5.4 quake today, and Lisa and I felt it in our house. Just a little bit of his power. And that's why Job says in Job 26, these are but the outer fringe of his works. Who can then understand the thunder of his power? So what is the purpose of all of these thunderstorms? Why does God do all of this thundering and lightning? Well, 97% of all of the water that we need is in the ocean. And in order for the ocean water to benefit us, two things have to happen. Number one, it needs to get to us. And number two, it needs to get to us without salt in it. So the way God does that is he sends the sun to heat up the ocean, and when that water heated up becomes lighter in gas form than liquid form, it begins to rise to the clouds. And it's stored in these wonderful transportation warehouses called clouds all around the world. Every year, 95 cubic miles of water are pulled out of the ocean and stored in oceans. Now, as the water rises higher and higher, changing from liquid to gas, when it reaches a certain temperature, it changes back from gas to liquid, collected in tiny droplets, and then begins to be too heavy for the clouds and begins to rain on earth. Every raindrop that you ever feel was the collection of one million droplets at one time inside those clouds. This helps you appreciate the book of Job when he says he wraps up the water in his clouds. How did he know this? He wraps up the water in his clouds, yet the clouds do not burst under their weight until they're over the part of the land that God says, I'm going to water that, that day. And all of this rain supplies food for the earth, and the water eventually returns to the ocean and the whole process starts again. And amazingly, for thousands of years, the same amount of water has existed all the time on earth. God simply recycles it day by day. In other words, if you took a shower this morning, you may have showered in the same water that an Egyptian pharaoh bathed in in 1500 B.C. All the same water is just continually recycled. The psalmist, Solomon, or Solomon knew this in Ecclesiastes. Very interesting statement made from a, a man who lived so long ago. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. It's interesting, isn't it? To the place the streams come from, they return again. 
So the rain from the ocean, over the mountains, over the plains, back through streams, back through rivers, into the ocean. So what is the purpose for all of this water? To water God's plants that he created on the third day of creation. That's supposed to be Genesis chapter 1. You knew that. Sorry about that. Genesis 1. And God said, let the land produce vegetation. Genesis 1. Oh, that should be Genesis 1, probably 11. Genesis 1, 11. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. I just love how God says big things so simply. He says, I produced plants and trees with their seeds in it. Why would he say that, with their seeds in it? Because the seeds that you planted in your garden this week, they've been used over and over again as well. And every seed, you go buy a pack of watermelon seeds, within every seed is the unbelievably complex blueprint to become a watermelon, all from Genesis 1. 11. It's when he provided seeds that we have been using throughout all of history. Now, in order for plants to grow and to benefit us, four things have to happen. They've got to have water, carbon dioxide, light, and nitrogen given all by God. Now, when you talk about water, it's an amazing thing that happens with water. All of the water falls on the ground, but you say, how does it get inside the plants? It would never rise up to the leaves of the plant, leaves of the plant, if it were not for two properties, two scientific properties, one called water tension, surface tension, which is the way that water likes to hold on to each other in molecules. And it also likes to grab onto a surface. If water is ever put in a constricted space, it likes to hold onto the surface and tend to climb, but it climbs with the other water, water molecules, all because of surface tension, the way God has designed water. And then through a, a law called capillarity, the water is pushed up against the forces of gravity. Why does water rise against gravity? Capillarity. And that's how the water gets to the top of plants. How strong is capillarity? Well, if you go and to the redwood forest in California, you can look at those mighty trees, and every single day, a hundred tons of water is uh, brought to the top of the trees because of surface tension and capillarity. But you know that plants need more than water to survive. They need carbon dioxide. This exists in abundance in our atmosphere. And in fact, you are helping right now to produce more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere every time you exhale. And plants have to have it. How do plants get carbon dioxide inside them? The stems and the, and, the, and, the, and the leaves have little tiny holes in all of the carbon dioxide from the air comes inside uh, the leaves and the pores uh, and the stem of the plant. But a plant also needs light. How does light get inside a plant? Well, God, in his absolute brilliance, has designed every plant with hundreds of thousands of solar panels. And each of them is programmed that when the sun is shining, the solar panels face the sun. And bring in the light. And when that light comes in from the sun, it is used for fuel to break down the carbon dioxide and the oxygen from the water. And it turns all of that into glucose 
inside the plant, and that is the fuel that causes the plant to grow. The fuel mechanism, light from the sun, transforming carbon dioxide and the, water, the molecules in the water into fuel so the plant can be filled with glucose and thrive. One more thing that plant needs to thrive, and that is nitrogen. Well, you know there's plenty of nitrogen in the atmosphere. 78% of our atmosphere is composed of nitrogen. But in its gaseous form, nitrogen doesn't benefit anybody. We need nitrogen. Your cells, your DNA, and the photosynthesis process of plants, they need chlorophyll. Nitrogen helps to make chlorophyll, which is important for photosynthesis to take place in plants. Nitrogen is, is one of the most important elements in the universe, but it's no good in its gaseous form. So it trickles down two ways it gets inside a plant. It trickles down and... And when it goes into the soil, God sends certain types of bacteria to transform the nitrogen into usable forms by the plant. And one other way that nitrogen in the atmosphere is made useful for plant is through lightning storms that hit the nitrogen in the air, turn it into a usable form, it mixes with the water, which is then absorbed by the plants. And God does all of this. So that plant will produce oxygen, and the oxygen that you're breathing now has been produced by the plants that go through this process. God does all of this brilliant, powerful, able to control the universe to do this for you to be able to breathe today. Finally, let's just look at the human body. David said, Psalm 139, For you have formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. No one has ever made a more profound statement about God's work than David did here in Psalm 139. We all begin as a single cell that was smaller than the period at the end of a sentence. I look at you now, you look pretty good, pretty big. At one time you were no larger than a period at the end of a sentence. When an egg is fertilized and begins to grow, the miracle of life occurs Within 30 hours, within 30 hours after conception, that single cell, that fertilized ovum, begins to divide from one, two, from two, from one cell. It's where you were, a little period in the sentence. One cell to two, and then two to four. And four becomes eight. And each new generation of cells doubles in number. And finally, about day seven on the right side of the screen, the developing child, the embryo, attaches to the mother's womb. At eight weeks, the child is now an inch long, very small, but a very well-proportioned baby, 40,000 times larger than the period at the end of the sentence. 
where it began as a single cell. Every organ is present, mouth, ears, nose are visible, and the heart has been beating since day 35 or 40. And day after day, millions of carefully orchestrated decisions are carried out as this child takes shape. And around somewhere around 39 weeks, a growing baby is born. And then if you are a fortunate, blessed granddad, comes to your house for a weekend like Lisa and I got and are experiencing right now. What up, Wells? Hope you're watching the sermon. And I just think about that little baby. Through his lifetime, should the Lord ordain 70 or 80 years for him, his little beating heart will pump in his body 50 million gallons of blood, enough to fill a train with tankers 25 miles long. Every church, every theater, every empty building should be filled throughout all of the universe. Every field, every, under, every, every field, every under tree with people worshiping God for that fact alone. He is worthy of our praise. So that child that started out with one cell now has a hundred trillion cells. 2 to 4 to 8 to 16 to 34 to 64 to 128, over and over again, splitting and splitting from 1 to 100 trillion cells, all made possible because of the wonder of DNA. Everything that you and I have become will become programmed, eye color, height, ability one day to talk and to think, all of it is stored inside the cells of our DNA. Yeah, I told you those 100 trillion cells in our body, each one of those cells is more complex than any city on earth. And there's 100 trillion cells. And they're all programmed by DNA. There's more information in DNA the size of the tip of a pen than if you could take a stack of books from here to the moon. Far more information in that pen-sized DNA than in all that information of all those books. So this morning we have looked at the, the glory of God by looking at his knowledge and his power. And I would like to conclude with three observations, three responses that come from looking at the knowledge and the power of God. Response to God's knowledge, it produces trembling, adoration, and trust. Trembling. God may be invisible to us, as A.W. Pink says, we are not invisible to him. He sees it all. David said, Psalm 139, verse 2, you know when I sit up, when I rise, my going out, my lying down, you're familiar with all my ways before a word is on my, he knows how the sentence is going to finish. You don't, he does. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely, such knowledge The wisdom of God is too wonderful for me. To the rebellious people of Israel, God said to them, Ezekiel 11.5, I even know the things that are in your head. The story of the Bible is man being so deceived that he thinks God doesn't see. Why people don't fear sin, don't really think that God sees. Adam and Eve... 
They hid from God, tried to hide from God. Cain killed Abel. God said, I saw you do that. Achan stole a bar of gold after a military battle, cost Israel severely. God said, I saw you do that. David and Bathsheba, adultery, murder. God said, he sent a preacher to say, I saw you do that. Everything's done, Korem Deo, in the face of God. Or as the psalmist says, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For the man who says, I've lived a good life, I would challenge that man. God has seen every moment you've ever lived, every word you've ever spoken, every action of your body, and every thought in your heart, every contemplation of your brain. God's seen it all. That's sobering. Trembling. God has seen it all. Everything I've ever done, thought, or said. But then there's adoration about the knowledge of God. Yes, it's sobering, even frightening that God has seen everything I do. But that's what makes his love so incomprehensibly special. He knows all the wrong decisions, all the rebellion, all of the doubt, all of the self-seeking. Yet when he looks at everything I've ever done and he knows everything I will ever do, he still initiates and enters into, by his prerogative, a relationship with me. This is what Jesus told Peter on the night before Jesus would die for Peter's sin and yours as well. Luke twenty two thirty four. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. So Jesus, knowing the future, knowing all things, said, Peter, you're going to deny me tonight. And then look what Jesus said. Even though I know that, but I have prayed for you. I hadn't abandoned you because of my knowledge. My knowledge makes me pray for you. I've even got a mission for you when you come back to me. I want you to strengthen your brothers. The final thing that knowledge of God, of our knowledge of God's knowledge, the response would be it should produce trust. If God knows all things, which he does, that means he has perfect knowledge about every event in our life and every event in the world. Nothing escapes his knowledge. Nothing is hidden. Nothing is forgotten. He doesn't overlook anything and say, oh my goodness, if I had known this, I would have made another decision. He can never say that because he knows everything. Last week we saw that because God is everywhere, it means he's already in the future. He knows the future. His decisions are made with perfect knowledge. He always does the right thing because he knows everything. Yes, there's abundant suffering in the world. And a lot of people said if God was all-powerful and all-loving, there would be no suffering. Hear that. A lot of times people say if God is all-powerful and all-loving, there would be no suffering. But they forget God is also all-knowing, which means there's a purpose for the suffering. He's all-powerful, He is all-loving, but He's all-knowing. He knows there's a purpose for the suffering that's infinitely greater in joy than the suffering was painful. 
As a matter of fact, Tim Keller says, if we knew what God knew, we would not disagree with his decisions ever. But we obviously don't. We're, we're not omniscient. We don't have all knowledge. So right now we just trust. And what do we trust in? We trust in his knowledge. Let me close with this. Few men have ever suffered in the world like Job. He lost his family. He lost his fortune. And he lost his health. And in the middle of his arguing with God, in the middle of his debating with God, when he says, I think you made the wrong decision on this one, God responds in the final five chapters of the book. The whole book's on suffering. And I want you to hear what it's like when God responds and say, trust my knowledge. I know how to run the world. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Even the Lord himself asked you, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together? And all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and I wrapped it in thick darkness. When I fixed limits for it, and I set its doors and bars in place. When I said, this far you may come and no farther. This is where your proud ways must halt. Have you ever in your life given orders to the morning? Or have you shown the dawn its place? Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea? Or have you walked in the recesses of the deep? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Oh, tell me if you know all of this. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail? Can you bind the beautiful Pleiades? Or can you loose the cords of Orion? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you and say, here we are? Oh, who endowed the heart with wisdom? And who gave understanding to the mind? And who has the wisdom to count the clouds? Or who can tip over the water jars of the heavens? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Or do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? Do you count the months till they bear? Or do you know the time when they give birth? Do you give the horse his strength or clothe his neck with a flowing mane? Or does the hawk take flight by your wisdom and spread his wings toward the south? Or does the eagle soar at your command and build his nest on high?
Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths are beyond tracing out. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. He has made everything beautiful in its time. And he has also set eternity in the hearts of men and yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Let all the earth fear the Lord and let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. To whom then will we compare God? Or who is this equal? You answer us with awesome deeds of righteousness. O God, our Savior, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, you alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth, and all that is on it, the seas, and all that move in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. So praise the Lord from the earth, all of his works, everywhere in his dominion. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted, and his splendor is above the earth and the heavens. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. The Lord is good and his love endures forever. And his faithfulness continues throughout all generations. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. pray. Father, we stand in awe of your wisdom and your knowledge. Hard to know what to say. We just thank you for the rain. Thank you for the sun. Thank you for oxygen. For the wonder of plants the beauty of nature and the benefits of nature. Father, we ask forgiveness for believing we could ever do anything that would be hidden from you. And we have chosen it many times in our life to live in that way. You've seen it all, and therefore today we confess it all. We know you've seen and heard every word, every inclination of our heart. You saw it. And we thank you, Jesus, that you came not to condemn us, but to confront us and to console us with your forgiveness and your love. So forgive us now, Jesus, for our failure to glorify you with our praise, our body, and yes, even our trust. 
For those who are in pain today, may they be reminded of your words to Job. In love, you know what you're doing. You have always known what you're doing. And Lord, this universe will finish right where you want it because you know what you're doing. Help us to be faithful until the end. It is in the name of Jesus Christ I pray. Amen.